0: Are listening to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Your host is Aradia. Welcome back to the Broken Earth Spoilers Podcast. Today we are covering perhaps one of the most exciting chapters in this book. That is a hard <laughs> claim to make, but oh man you guys. Chapter 17, Demaya in Finality, is a hell of a chapter we're gonna have fun i'm trying yet another pattern of how i might put my thoughts together on this project or on this podcast for this episode because it's such a big chapter and i didn't manage my time well so this might be yet another flavor of storytelling uh no live audience no guest and not even a script but a whole lot of notes in my book and more ideas about how i'm going to think through the story so We'll see if I like it. (laughs) So the chapter opens about a year later. Things change. There is an order to life in the fulcrum, but the world is never still. A year passes. Friends do not exist. The fulcrum is not a school. Grits are not children. Origins are not people. Weapons have no need of friends. This is how the chapter opens. And I noticed that the next chapter where we are talking with Yika, one of her first comments to Cyanite is, oh, you've got the fulcrum attitude, sadness, fuckery damage. (laughs) You've got that fulcrum damage. And this is that. Inan comments on it too. Yika and Inan, that's one of the first things that they notice about Origins is how incredibly sad and messed up and alone and all of that they are. And this is the chapter or this paragraph, really. That part, that last part, friends do not exist. That whole section, it's, this is what she internalizes for the rest of her life. You know, the events of this chapter are very unique. They're very singular. They're things that she won't think about again for many decades, but this first paragraph, That's what she will be thinking about every minute of every day for the next several years, the next decades, for all of those decades. This will be what is uppermost in her mind, not the events that happen throughout the rest of the chapter. We learn a lot in this chapter that does not make sense until the end of book three. You know, this is, I should just say, this is the socket chapter. This is a chapter where we see a socket. And we see a guardian get contaminated, and we get all kinds of cool hints at what ends up coming with the explanations we get in book three. Also, this is the chapter where we meet Beanoff, and you know how I feel about Tonky. <laughs> so, Tonky, child detective, is in this chapter. This is where she sneaks into the fulcrum and just completely is amazing as. I guess, what, a nine, (laughs) ten-year-old? She goes full-on private investigator and totally gets into trouble and probably almost dies, given the way the guardian behaves. Just fucking fearless. I want to be her when I grow up. (laughs) Also, I don't know if anybody has actually been seeing this, but I uh, have been spelling Beanoff with two Fs. I would like to correct the record now. Beanoff has one F. B-I-N-O-F. Despite my desire to put a double F at the end, it's wrong. And we see Shafa become even scarier than before, even more comforting than before. And at the end of the chapter, we see Demaya become cyanite. So that's kind of our overview. Socket, bean-off, contaminated guardian, transition to being cyanite. And then our stone lore At the end of the chapter is from Tablet 2, which is what the last chapter ended on. So we're actually having back-to-back sections of stone lore. Though I believe in this case, it's, uh, the last one was verse 7 and this one's going to be verse 9. So we're missing verse 8. The incomplete truth. Ah! Okay. So Demaya is bored, basically. The library that she's she's learning to like to read, but she's got a bit of dyslexia going on. And the library doesn't have a lot of books that are meant to be entertaining because, as it points out, weapons do not need fun either. Right. She's being trained to be a weapon, not to have a good time. So sad. She practices her lessons really assiduously. And Origen's power is in her focus. So she will actually just think through her lessons and practice, which actually makes a lot of sense aside from the fact that it makes sense within the magic system that has been invented for this series. It's also a real thing that if you think through like a martial arts sequence or running a marathon or playing a musical instrument, your brain will light up in the same ways as it would if you were really performing those tasks, your muscles will uh, tense and contract in response to you imagining doing these actions. So you actually can legitimately practice something, you can practice a skill, practice an event, practice a speech, something like that, you can practice that just by thinking through it. Obviously, it's not the same thing as practicing it with your entire body, you know, running a marathon is different than thinking about running a marathon. But you can get extra practice in, if you think about it, when you aren't actually physically doing it also so i definitely think that that is nice to have this little magical system reinforcing that at like a in-world reason it's nice and we get a really interesting sense of how this whole they aren't children thing works with respect to their autonomy they have a schedule They have a schedule and they have areas that they are restricted from. But they're pretty much let loose to run around as they will within those constraints. There's very, very little control being exerted. There's expectations and there's punishments that fit the crime. But there aren't hard boundaries. You know what I'm saying? Like there aren't rules. (laughs) There's just boundaries that you're expected to learn about. It's interesting It's something Beanoff comments on. She's like, why does nobody mind that there's kids wandering around late at night? You know, she's very much from a world where like children are supposed to be in bed and like grits are not children. They're weapons in training. So as long as they're not supposed to be in a lesson or in an area that is expressly off limits, it doesn't matter. And that's one of those. The worldview is so different between the two girls as they're walking down the hallway. And it really shows you how different it is to grow up in the fulcrum. Another reason why they don't have super hard boundaries is because you can't be expelled from the fulcrum. You can get put into a node station, but there's no, like, you flunked out option, really. So Demaya really enjoys being alone and wandering around and exploring and discovering things for herself. But she's also a rule follower. She mostly only explores the least interesting parts of the fulcrum, but she discovers so many interesting mysteries. And it keeps her very occupied for a very long time before Off shows up. The Fulcrum Complex is huge. Apart from the garden and the grit training grounds, there are clusters of living quarters that house the ringed origins, libraries and theaters, a hospital. There are also miles of obsidian-paved walkways in Greenland that hasn't been left fallow or kept prepared for a possible fifth season. Instead, it's landscaped. It's just there to be pretty. Demaya figures. That means someone should look at it. <laughs> <laughs> I like Demaya. I like how she's finding her little her little niches in this strange, cruel world that's really difficult to live in. She's finding her peace. And she's finding her little sanctuaries and her little moments that are for her. And I like getting to see that. And so she spends a lot of time imagining what her future life is going to look like walking through all of these spaces late at night, sort of populating it with her visions of her future. The adults mostly don't pay attention to her because they're focused on their adulty things. Again, I love how Jemison's voice for the POV is really, really accurate. It really gets you to feel the age and inclination of who she's writing for. I've found this true in The City We Became, also you really, really get a sense for the characters through the way that the POV just conjugates things and narrates things. It doesn't even have to be like in italics as a thought, it's just the way she writes adulty things. None of the adults would think that. That's a very 10 year old sort of word, but it just sets the texture of the emotions of what's happening really well, I think. And Demaya basically uh, goes for the ask for forgiveness, not permission, method of being places. And it works. (laughs) In the administrative buildings, she finds the really cool stuff. Because what I described before was the actual living working part of the fulcrum. The administrative buildings are where she finds the unused rooms. And those are super cool. Oh, first we should also talk about the crucibles. Chambers, where they actually train in Orogeny. Great amphitheater-like halls, roofless, with mosaic rings etched into the bare ground in concentric circles. Sometimes there are huge blocks of basalt lying about. Sometimes the ground is disturbed, but the basalt is gone. It's really cool. She sneaks in and watches people doing their lessons, giving us a view of what she's going to be doing as cyanide and as soon later in ways that don't get described because she thinks of it as very ordinary, commonplace, normal things to be doing. When she's an adult right but as a kid this stuff is fascinating and stunning and amazing to her so we get to actually see what orogeny looks like from the outside to an origin sometimes she catches adults in the chambers practicing they shift the blocks around like children's toys pushing them deep into the earth and raising them again by will alone blurring the air around themselves with deadly rings of cold it's exhilarating and intimidating and she follows what they're doing as best she can though that isn't much I love it. I just love the visual of her sitting there peeking around the corner kind of getting these vague senses of what's happening but mostly it's just swirly swishy grinding noises and waves of cold air washing around and frost coming and sublimating and ooh, I want the scene in the show so bad Maine, though that's the building where she finds all the trippy stuff All the old stuff. So, the important thing to note here is that the core of the Fulcrum complex is a vast domed hexagon, larger than all the other buildings combined. When I first read that, I just was like, whatever, it's a weird architectural marvel. But now that I know what it is and I'm really thinking about it for the podcast, it's huge. Like, this is a big city, and she's saying that this dome is bigger than all of the other buildings. It just dominates. And we know, of course, that this is a dome built over the socket. This dome perfectly matches the socket. They want people to get into it, exactly not at all, and have no idea that it's there, so they built a giant six-sided dome over it. Well, it's a dome hexagon. It's a dome on top and six-sided on the sides. So that's the socket. The socket is just this big impression (laughs) that sticks up above the skyline of the rest of the fulcrum and is like dun-dun-dun-dun. At least I assume it's taller than all the rest. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the same height as all the rest. But it's really, really broad. It's an architectural wonder for sure. So in this main building, we've got Ringed Origins doing all of the administrative work for keeping the fulcrum running because obviously they have to be self-sufficient. This is also where the guardians live. And at this point, she is trained enough to be sensitive to the weird buzzing sensation that guardians give off towards Origins, just without even meaning to. There's always a buzz in the back of the head. Last time we checked in with her, she was not sensitive to it. Now she is. She begins to notice a strange sensation whenever she's in a guardian's presence. It's a buzzy feeling, a jagged and acrid sort of thing. Something more heard and tasted than sensed, So this is giving us a description of the same sensation that Cyan experienced in Alia, but in a little bit more detail because this is Demaya reflecting on it as someone who's understanding it for the first time, whereas Cyan is like, God, fuck, this is this again. No, I don't like it. And so she just sort of writes it off. So you don't get to see it in as much detail as the reader. So... I don't know quite what the shape of the fulcrum complex is because we're told that there are wings off of Maine. Maine being the six-sided domed hexagon thing. But i I guess maybe... Is it that the hexagons... Each face of the hexagon has a wing in it? Is that how that works? I'm not really clear on the layout of this and I don't know if there's any maps or anything. I haven't seen any before when I looked, but it seems like every time I go to Google and look for more art, there is more art that wasn't there last time, which is awesome, because that means that more and more fans are finding this series and creating art and sharing it online, and that's super duper cool. Um, But so far, I haven't seen a map or an illustration that explains how the fulcrum works. So if anyone finds that, please send it my way. I would love to be able to visualize it better. Demaya is told... That the fulcrum is simply larger than it needs to be. And that's why there's abandoned spaces in it. But there's not really a good explanation for why that happened. I think... uh, What do I think? I don't know what I think. I think it's because it's an adapted structure. Well, but is it though? The socket was there since still Anagis, but everything else was built after when the Sansa Empire got started they built on this thought we're going to learn a bunch of history later with Beanoff, off but i'm just trying to think why the fulcrum is so big maybe it is just that they expected there to be more origins over time i feel like because Demaya is throwing it out there as a hypothesis it's probably not true but maybe it is just a matter of the builders thought that more origins would survive childhood or maybe they assumed there would be an actual breeding program for orogeny that was more successful Because I actually do have a breeding program for Orogenate, but maybe they assumed it would be more successful than it is. I don't know. If you guys have ideas? Let me know. So eventually Demaya finds some of these unused wings, and she's smart enough to not go wandering in without resources, so she spends a few days collecting an adorable explorer's pack of a knapsack out of a pillowcase, an old kitchen knife, a broken lantern, and she gets it all together and takes off like a regular little explorer, and they just love her so much some serious sirens happening outside right now every day lately sirens i don't know why so i guess maybe the wings are just i bet that it's like a ring like the pentagon except it's a hexagon instead (laughs) maybe that's what it is so there's this hollow space in the middle set of rooms corridor set of rooms exterior wall all in the shape of a hexagon I don't know why they're called wings, though. Like, that's what's tripping me out, is I feel like wings should come away from the main building. But maybe I'm just being really architecturally ignorant. That's super, super valid. I just like buildings for being pretty. That's most of what I get out of buildings. It's kind of like cars. That's about what I get out of cars, is I like old ones. So maybe that is the proper term for the wing of a building. I don't know. Sorry to people who understand architecture and are yelling at their podcast right now. Tamaya <laughs> really likes exploring the rooms. Most of them are offices and meeting rooms or lecture halls, and that's boring, which, fair. And then she finds a stash of old books, and she gets super into it because they're frivolous fun books that don't get pride of place in the library. <laughs> she discovers a floor that was once apparently used as living quarters, perhaps in some boom year when there were too many origins to house comfortably in the apartment buildings. For whatever reason, however, it appears that many of the inhabitants simply walked off and left their belongings behind. I think that these apartments full of clothes and items are the apartments of origins who were killed when seasons came around. That's just my hypothesis, but we know that the Fulcrum doesn't have store caches for seasons. Humanus isn't going to feed them. And we know that Guardians go to Warrant to hibernate like creepy vampire wasp things in Core Point on the other side of the world. I think that they must cull, kill, murder pact, suicide, massacre the Origins whenever there's a season before they take off. To go hibernate. When Demaya gets introduced to all of this by Shafa, he says that Guardians and Origins share each other's fate during seasons. But that's not true. The Origins don't get to hibernate and come out when the world is safeish again. I think that they die, and I think that the Guardians would consider it a mercy to kill them rather than let them go to the mob. You know, like that would be a very guardian thing to do. So I think that we find these, you know, untouched, abandoned apartments because they were all, you know, led away, never to return without knowing that that's what was going to happen because a season has happened. That's just my head headcanon. Feel free to dispute it. She finds an interesting room full of plush, ornate chairs arranged in a circle to face each other and has no idea why. I'm imagining a seance because I'm feeling random. <laughs> she also finds a lab, the chemistry and physics lab. She assumes that it must be that origins are left to study orogeny to themselves and no respectable scientists are touching it. I don't think that that's right. I think that it's just everyone wants to study it. I think that there's a lot of research that goes into orogeny. We see research notes later in some of the after chapter bits. So I think Demaya is just wrong. I think it's just such a mysterious thing and they're trying to recreate essentially the science of Silanagist in order to understand what's going on like that's what they have to do in order for it not to be a mysterious process they don't understand they're going to have to recreate the science of Silanagist and that's gonna you know (laughs) strain their abilities because that's a really big technological hill to climb back up I think everyone's just trying to do their part to find out what they can find out and It makes sense that it gets studied at the heart. These explorations become the highlight of Demaya's day. Her instructors clearly don't mind that that's what she's doing. And she just keeps finding more and more stuff. And it's awesome. There is an order to life in the fulcrum. But this is her order. She sets it and no one else disrupts it. It is good to have something she keeps for herself. And then one day, everything changes. Enter Beanoff! Yay! I'm so excited we get Beanoff. I did some timeline calculations. At least six months has to be included in that and then one day sort of time jump. That's gotta be six months in order for her to be able to say that she has given her fellow grits years to learn to ignore her. In order to get into years, you really need it to be two years, right? So this one day has to be at least six months. It might be more like a year and a half total for her to say years. I think that's a little bit of an exaggeration on her part. But hey, she's like 11 or whatever. So exaggeration is the name of the game. But I think it's six months-ish. Four to six months of her exploring by herself and creating this rhythm and having everything be the same. And then everything changes, because all things change in a season. And this isn't really a season yet, but it is in some ways the build-up to a season. Four to six months after Demaya has first discovered she can explore these fun corridors and rooms. She's walking home from class one day, or walking back to the dorms from class, and she's tired but pleased with herself. Because instructor Marcusite praised her for her control of her torus and how she was able to move rocks really precisely and not make too much of an ice ring and all this cool specific stuff about erogeny, and is telling her that she's almost ready for her first ring test. She's super excited and tired. You know how you are when you pass a hard test or you get a really good piece of feedback on a paper that you stayed up late to finish. That feeling. She's in that feeling. And if she does take it soon then she'll be taking it a year earlier than most grits and the first of anyone in her particular class group. And we know by the end of the chapter, she does take her first ring test and obviously passes because she goes on to become cyanide. And then as soon. Marcusite says, she's ready for it soon. She will take it by the end of this day. Actually, she's already tired. At this point in her day, she's going to go through the entire everything with Beanoff and the socket and Shafa. All of that is going to happen, and then he's going to say, Yeah, you need to take your test now. <laughs> kind of reminds me of. Nope, I'm not doing a Wheel of Time reference, but it reminds me of something from Wheel of Time. Before we get into Beanoff's interaction with Demaya, I thought we could talk a little bit about Marcusite, because Marcusite is a mineral that we should talk about. It's not particularly like vital to the story or anything i just you guys like it when i talk about geology going to geology.com and reading an article from hobart m king phd marcosite is a yellow to silvery yellow iron sulfide mineral with a chemical composition of fes sub 2 it forms by precipitation from acidic waters in surface or near surface environments Marcosite is commonly found in sediments, sedimentary rocks, and hydrothermal deposits in many parts of the world. Marcosite has historically been used as a source of sulfur. However, today it does not have any significant industrial use. There's a very cool picture on this of coxcomb marcosite, which the description is tabular crystals of, quote, coxcomb, close quote, marcosite, with spear tip terminations grown on a base of fluorite. It's a specimen from Illinois. It's these long, thin blades of a greenish, grayish, splotchy kind of coloration. It's like mottled kind of between a very yellowy green and a very translucent gray. And there's striations going up and down it. And you can see that it has some definite angles and corners. Very, very cool looking specimen. And the person's fingers holding the sample are giant. It's a really small sample. The description says it measures four by two by two centimeters. Yeah, (laughs) that's really small. Kind of going through its basic diagnostic principles. It's classified as a sulfide. So think fool's gold, iron pyrite. Think like that. This is a very similar uh, substance it's just different in a couple of principal ways but generally it's akin to fool's gold it's pale bronze yellow to silvery yellow on fresh surfaces but it will tarnish extremely easily and alter to a brownish color over time under very ordinary circumstances there's a thing at the end of this article that talks about how there's a lot of jewelry that is labeled as being marcasite. it's not marcasite. It's either iron pyrite or bits of metal, actually, because this material, this mineral, will degrade very rapidly under the ordinary conditions you would have jewelry in, and it will tarnish things near it and create acids that damage other things. And yet, no, you don't want marcasite jewelry, even if it existed, which it, for the most part, does not. Here's another interesting thing. The article talks about how people who have experience with hand samples can tell Pyrite and marcasite hand samples apart just by looking at them, just from the color and luster. But the final diagnostic test is the streak. So remember, the streak is where you actually smear the mineral against a piece of ceramic and see what color comes out. Pyrite can be kind of greenish, and it's a really weird sickly color, especially coming from a goldish colored rock. Marcasite will come out pure gray, like pencil, graphite stick, gray. Geologic occurrences of marcosite, Uh, it can come about in three different ways. It's a pretty common mineral you're going to find more or less all over the place, aside from the fact that it degrades really quickly, which of course means you won't find it very much. It's actually a fairly rare mineral, but not because it's rarely formed. It's just rarely lasts long enough for you to find it. Uh, But it can form in one of three ways. One, as a primary sedimentary material. Two, as a product of low temperature hydrothermal activity. And three, as a secondary mineral that forms during the alteration of other sulfides, such as chalcopyrite. Most conditions of marcasite formation are at relatively low temperatures and elevated acidity. So, as you might have guessed, you will actually find marcasite a lot where you find coal. And it's actually a very important part of the economics surrounding coal. Because it ends up being the component that contributes sulfur in The waste product from the combustion of coal. So you're going to find a bunch of this stuff, a bunch of these ingredients in the same conditions as you'd find coal, right? Decomposing swampy forests, lots of sediment, lots of organic material. You're going to find it sort of woven through the same conditions as would make coal. So... You can look for this in your coal and then make an estimation of how much sulfur is going to come out in the exhaust of burning that coal. And sulfur is, of course, extremely important when we consider atmospheric quality with things like acid rain. Sulfur is a big part of how that is a thing. In clays and limestones, pyrite and or often form in the microgeochemical environments that surround fossils or pieces of organic debris occasionally entire fossils are replaced with pyrite and rarely marcasite. that's kind of cool that'd be a fun thing to find even if again you'd have to keep it in a pretty dark and humidity controlled environment in order to have it not degrade that'd be pretty cool to find a replacement fossil of marcasite in hydrothermal deposits Marcasite can be one of many sulfide minerals to be deposited along with veins and fractures often associated in that context with pyrite Galena, sphalerite, fluorite, dolomite, and calcite, which, again, makes sense, right? Those are the kinds of things that are going to be forming where you have a lot of muddy sediments. (laughs) Galena is uh, lead-based, as I recall, but dolomite and calcite are like a fossil-y thing. makes limestone and stuff like that. It's one of the ingredients you'll find in old coral reefs. So that all checks out, (laughs) holds together. According to this, also, until the early 1800s, many people used the word marcasite and other equivalents collectively to mean pyrite, marcasite, and all the other yellow iron sulfide minerals. It was not until 1845 that marcasite was recognized as a specific orthorhombic iron sulfide versus being different from pyrite, which, so we should probably talk about exactly how these guys are different, right? So the physical properties of marcasite that distinguish it from pyrite are going to be the crystal structure itself pyrite crystallizes in the isometric system meaning again that all of the sides of the crystals and the angles of the crystals are going to be the same from one to one to one so a cube basically and marcosite is orthorhombic and i forget what that means but it means that it's longer and shorter and tighter and wider in various dimensions that's the important part, is that they're different in crystal structure. The way that that ball and stick model looks is different, and that has profound implications for how it withstands various temperature and pressure conditions. So that's Marcusite. Thank you, Marcusite, for helping us out with that. So now we can get to my favorite character ever! And also, like, a totally badass entrance. Be enough. This is the beginning of a relationship that ultimately helps save the world. Having Tonki along for the ride saves Essun and Kastrima multiple times. She's part of witnessing the recapture of the moon. She helps the world begin to put itself back together with respect to understanding what having the moon back means. She's She's part of how the world goes on after, you know? Tonki is part of who makes the world go on after the moon is recaptured. This is the beginning of that relationship. This is a day that changes this little girl's life. She's determined that she's found a big secret and she's going to do something about it. Little does she know (laughs) that without her interference throughout her life, based on the things that happened this day, she might be one of the people that saved the world. Incidentally, obviously, as soon as does the vast majority of the work but this is the beginning of Tonki being involved in the saving of the world. So the Grits are walking back to their dorms and right as they turn a corner this girl just steps into the line just catches her moment and slips in so subtly that Demaya hardly even notices. And then she notices and is thinking about saying something and then the girl gives her this cheeky fucking wink and suddenly Demaya is a co-conspirator. Just like that. Given how bad Tonky is with people in the long run, it's hilarious to me that she pulls off slipping into the fulcrum and gaining an accomplice in Demaya so quickly. Like she is much better with people as a kid than as an adult, I think. <laughs> Their first interaction is so awesome. Demaya turns to the Grit, who is not a Grit. Who are you? Is that really what you want to ask? The girl looks honestly puzzled. (laughs) They cut right to the chase, these two. There is so little... I don't even know what it is about this that I like, but it's, there's no small talk. It goes straight to what matters, and that characterizes their interactions forever. They really do not waste time on useless words at all when they talk to each other. So let's look at her. Who is Tonki the Child? She is Demaya's age, tall and lanky, and more sallow-skinned than most young Sanseds, and her hair is curled and dark instead of stiff and gray. So what I'm getting from that is that she's about 11 and she's a little bit on the tall and nerdy side and she doesn't have quite the right hair. Like she's a little bit pale, maybe a little bit unhealthy, a little bit too much in her head, not enough in her body. And her hair isn't the optimal beautiful kind. It's dark instead of gray and it's more of a wavy loose thing than stiff. We see her have pretty matted, nasty, uh, so-called locks that aren't really locks, uh, later. She's basically a big, tall nerd. That's what I'm getting from this. (laughs) She's done her costume well enough to pull off the look of a grit really well, aside from just being a stranger. She's got her hair and uniform proper. It's just the part where they all know each other, so how can she possibly just randomly show up, right? Right? the mysterious girl is almost offended at Demaya's first question. Demaya is speechless and like, what are you doing here? And off being who she is, she just starts sort of talking and rattling off her thought process and being quite confused about the whole everything. I thought other people would notice me. I would notice if somebody new showed up in my class. Beanoff is demanding that there is, must be a better question than who you are, but Demaya is not taking any for shit and says, No, I'm going to yell for the instructors. Beanoff's like, Fine, fine. I'm Beanoff. Who are you? And before Demaya knows it, she's exchanging her name and they are now allies in whatever shenanigans Beanoff's going to get into. Beanoff leans into that and is like, No, you're my co conspirator. It's great. Demaya almost names herself as Strongback and is a little bit tripped out to realize how easily that term that she's given up using for two years almost came out of her mouth she thought she had put that behind but it sort of just popped out and then she tries to ask what are you doing here where'd you come from what the actual fuck words sort of fail her but that's what it comes down to and Beanoff is like okay so quick story (laughs) very quick Beanoff asks have you seen a weird sort of place in an odd shape And she's really flailing to express what she means. And it seems comical and nonsensical until something clicks. And Demaya realizes that Binoff is describing the center of the fulcrum, which is a space she hasn't been able to get into yet, but has been able to infer from the shape of where she's been able to explore, she's realized that the depth of the building doesn't account for the middle part. And she realizes that that's what Beanoff's looking for through this, you know, basically charades pantomime <laughs> that Beanoff puts on. We also get a little bit more descriptions about how the fulcrum fits into Humanus. The black star is on the west of the fulcrum's grounds, And to the north of the fulcrum's grounds, Demaya has seen a cluster of buildings that are actually tall enough to see into the fulcrum, which seems super rude and weird to me. It's just like, why would you make the walls taller? (laughs) Give the origins their freaking space. Maybe that's where, like, some shadowy intelligence service hangs out or something so they can look down on them. I don't know. It's really weird. I think that's strange. Totally beside the point. The fulcrum is circular, and Maine is circular, but Maine isn't actually quite perfectly circular. Maine is actually a hexagon, but it's mostly a circle because the hexagon's on the inside and then they built out to make it into a circle. So it's not like the Pentagon, if I'm understanding this correctly. It's not like the Pentagon. The Pentagon has the same amount of Pentagoniness on the outside as on the inside. What Demaya seems to be describing here is like each successive layer out turns it more into a circle but she can tell that there's that hexagon on the inside because she's been finding the interior wall on all of her exploratory adventures interesting demaya contemplates that she hasn't found a door into this space not in the unused wings not that she's found yet yeah i'm pretty much talking myself into thinking that the sides of the building must be wings and my whole idea about how they have to flare away from the building is just stuff and nonsense You heard it here first, guys. Stuff and nonsense. So Beanoff gets super excited at the news that Demaya knows exactly what she's talking about. And Demaya reinforces the question. Who are you? Because in a way, this actually covers all of the bazillion actual questions that she has. And Beanoff gives the answer that explains it in a way. Beanoff, leadership, humaness. It means almost nothing to Demaya. But then intuition turns a key here and makes various clues click together, and suddenly Demaya realizes Beanoff is not merely expressing misplaced loyalty to a social convention that no longer applies. It does apply to Beanoff because Beanoff is not an origin. And Beanoff's not just any still, she's a leader. And she's from humanus, which makes her a child of one of the most powerful families in the stillness. <laughs> she's so fucking audacious. I love that. I just had to read you guys that because it's just, how do you not? I mean, you learn so much from this and then it just, uh, I, I like that passage. So Binoff explains her purpose in being here. She has no desire to get Demaya in trouble. She'll even attempt to help her not get in trouble. But she's here looking for answers to questions that she can't divulge because it's so important. And it's for her safety and for Demaya's safety. And she just takes herself very seriously here. And I freaking love it. She's like, I'm a secret FBI agent and I don't want you to be killed for the secrets you know. It's like, you're 11, child. (laughs) How big of a secret can you have? Obviously, we know she actually has discovered an incredibly important secret they might be killed over. But I love that she's clearly taking herself seriously in the way that I took myself seriously at that age. <laughs> she has way more, like, badassery and uh, she has way more gonads than I do, shall we say. Way more gonads than I ever did at her age. But the level of seriousness, absolutely. I took myself 110% that seriously when I was 11. I was just way more shy about expressing it in disobedience on the scale of sneaking into a highly dangerous compound full of weapons being trained blah 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 i never did anything that extreme but i took myself that seriously demaya points out that Bienoff's totally gonna get caught doing this and we see an expression of Bienoff's total privilege here the girl shrugs with the ease of someone who has never known true fear in her life Her reaction actually is literally, when they do, I'll just tell them who I am. Like, wow, check your privilege. (laughs) She's literally going to be like, do you know who my dad is? And then they'll be like, oh, sorry. And she'll be fine. You know, she won't get punished beyond whatever her parents do to her, which, you know, could be pretty bad. We have no idea what her parents are like, but... The casualness with which she shrugs it off speaks to the fact that her parents are probably pretty much some overachieving, high-level, like... No, she's the child of one of the most important families in Humanists. But, you know, it's like the ambassador's son or the president's daughter or somebody like that getting in trouble. It's like, do you know who my dad is? (laughs) Demaya refuses to help because, as she thinks of it, she isn't a leader or a person. No one will save her. She has... No protections remotely like what Beanoff has. She will just get chucked aside like crack. And Beanoff is like, No, I have blackmail against you because you already haven't turned me in. So I've got you as an accomplice. Damiya's like, Eh, I can call your bluff. It's a gamble at this point. So also, I'm pissed that you're trying to manipulate me. <laughs> and Beanoff tries to buy her with three red diamond chips and a whole Alexandrite and again their economy is fascinating in that it never gets explained but this child has three red diamonds i don't even know what red diamonds are i'm assuming diamonds that have some red stuff in them i don't even know if those really exist Eh, google says red diamonds are a thing cool they're also super expensive according to the internet so clearly their economy is not scaled like ours is it's alexandrite You guys can imagine what a red diamond is. but Also, if it's called Alexandrite, I'm going to assume for the name Alex. That's interesting. Oh, Alexandrite's pretty. It's blues and greens and purples. Often described by gem aficionados as emerald by day, ruby by night. A very rare color change variety of the minute Chrysobarrel. Chrysoberyl. Oh. Beryl, you guys might remember from a prior episode, is a gorgeous mineral that's very hard, and there's lots of gemstones that are fundamentally beryl. So, chrysoberyl. I don't know exactly what chryso is all about, but beryl. Hard, clear, pretty. Originally discovered in Russia's earl mountains in the 1830s it's now found in sri lanka east africa and brazil but fine material is exceptionally rare and valuable that's from gaia.edu which is just the first thing that came up on google cool yeah 8.5 on the most hardness scale makes sense oh pretty pretty cool so it's a fairly rare gem fun i just learned about that nifty so yeah binoff is kind of like i have shiny pretty she has two shiny red diamonds and an entire unit of alexandrite i don't know what a unit would be clearly bigger than a chip i assume but i don't know what their unit is but yeah she's trying to flash some like 20s and hundreds i'm guessing as being like look i have like hundreds of dollars can i buy you off I'm assuming that that's the equivalent of if someone came to your prison of a dormitory and tried to buy your silence as an 11-year-old. Hundreds of dollars would probably feel like someone's pretty loaded, right? So Demai gets really more angry, because not only is this chick trying to manipulate her, she's trying to buy her off as though she's just a regular person, and she's not a regular person. She doesn't need money. She lives in the fucking fulcrum. She doesn't need money. Beanoff then tries to say, well, I can get you privileges for the next time that you leave the fulcrum. Demai's like, you Fucking idiot, I don't get to leave. That's not an option. Do you fucking understand what it means to be a grit? I mean she's thinking that. I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) Editorializing. Demaya's impressed that Beanoff even got into the fulcrum, but then she reflects that all the guards and everything are meant to keep people in, not to keep people out. So this infuriating, talkative genius persistent person clearly was going to get in one way or another i hope you can hear my eyes rolling as i empathize with demaya on this demaya gets so angry that her unrogyny starts to flex and this is bad this is not a measure of control this is a measure of her childishness and she's not ready for her first ring test and it's bad but it's because she's really pissed and then Beanoff leans around her and says oh are you angry are you doing orogeny? what does it feel like and that just totally pops the bubble of anger because it's so ridiculous. Demaya is being raised to think of herself as Missilem, as a monster, as a tool. And thinking of this power as being this terrible curse and burden and all of this stuff. And Beanoff, wonderful, wonderful Beanoff, is just like, ooh, can you show me more? She's just fascinated. I love that about her so much. It reminds me of... um. At myself as a Star Trek nerd, it reminds me of Kira and Odo in DS9. The fact that he sees himself as such a terrible, scary thing for being what he is. And she's like, I love you and every part of you and your ability to change is part of that. I don't love you despite it. I love you including it. Not because of it, but including it. That is a part of you that I enjoy. This kind of reminds me of that. Obviously, it's not romantic, but it's just the the inversion of fear to fascination. One man's terrifying thing is another man's life's passion. Looking at you, volcanologists, we learn that Demaya has no idea if this is how all leaders are or just this one person, because Palela was such a small town that nobody from the leadership cast even lived there at all. It's a very, very stratified society that... This world is set up in. She literally didn't have people from that group remotely in where she was growing up, so she doesn't even know what they're like. (laughs) She's wondering maybe this is just what humanessian leaders are like, or or maybe maybe this girl's just ridiculous. Yes, it's it's this girl. Beanoff is one of a kind. She's very excited to be meeting a child origin. She's never gotten to meet one. She's nothing demaya's nothing like what the lorist said she would be she's not scary she's just another girl like her that she just wants to make friends with demaya says i don't understand anything about you which unexpectedly makes Beanoff sad because it reminds her of how her mom talks to her which makes me sad because we know that she eventually gets disowned from her family well not really disowned kind of disowned she gets given a new identity buried at university and given all the money that she needs to just stay quiet and be an academic she's probably five ten five years maybe i'd say she's as little as five and as much as 10 years away from the big falling out with her family that will lead to her going off to seventh and becoming tonky and becoming an innovator and all of that she, you know, she gets to use her family's money to track soon. But given that she's 11 now, she's years into being harassing. It, she's years into being an irritant to her parents for being such a strange child, for being so inquisitive and never taking no for an answer and always asking uncomfortable, unconventional questions and being the wild, insane person that she is. Not to mention scuttling their marriage plans, but that wasn't a big deal. But she might even be struggling with her parents to accept her being a girl at this point. I have no idea how much of a struggle that was. We know that it was not technically a boundary to her getting married and furthering her family's lineage. We know that that wasn't an issue fundamentally, but we don't know if that was like a short conversation or a long conversation. But in any case, if she's 11 and feeling sad about being reminded that her mom doesn't understand her, then we're years into what leads up to a big fucking blowout fight that turns Beanoff into Tonky. Poor girl. Anyhow, she insists, come find this room with me. And Demaya honestly can't really resist because novelty to hang out with someone, to have a mission. It's exciting. She's a kid. She wants to do cool shit. And so she says yes. And so the conspiracy begins. Demaya says that she's never found a way into the space. She knows where Binoff's talking about, but she doesn't actually know how to get into it. Binoff says, well, that makes sense. It's a special space. It's not going to be easy to get into. But she does know that it should be on the south side of the building, based on some old architectural drawings she saw, which, again child detective. I love her so much. She's like 10, 11 years old, pawing through filing cabinets of dirty old architectural drawings and getting caught by like the family steward or something being like, young Miss Speedoff, what are you doing in that library again? I'm going to headcanon that that scene happened and you can't stop me. <laughs> I need the entire backstory of her growing up because I think it would be the best like Kid comedy thing ever, be so cute. Okay, focus. So beanoff knows it's gonna be on the southern side of the building, on the ground level. Not one of the unused wings, unfortunately. This is because it's the Guardians' wing. We learn in this scene, in this chapter, that the Guardians live on the south side, the south wing of the fulcrum and that makes sense because that's where the door to get to the socket is right it totally makes sense that they would have the door buried inside their territory so to speak right so they go on the walk like usual demaya's really anxious that someone's going to notice them and she thinks people are noticing them more and then she passes galena galena who once saved her from getting kicked out or getting kicked to a node station or something for being drunk because crack got her drunk when he smiles at her and looks away she realizes that she is getting more attention because she has a friend but not for bad reasons it's not like they don't recognize the grit with her which they they think that they must recognize the grit with her right they just assume oh yeah she's with a friend but they all think it's cute that the little loner girl has a friend and it's hilarious because it gives her so much anxiety, but it actually reflects like one of those little bits of humanity that actually does come through from the instructors to the students for all the fuckery that's happening. They are actually excited to see that. And all it does is give her anxiety. <laughs> Beanoff thinks it's really weird though, that they're getting so little attention. Again, totally different perspective on the exact same thing. Demaya thinks they're getting tons of attention. Beanoff thinks they're getting no attention. Such different worldviews, such different senses of danger and senses of what you need to be aware of. Demaya dismisses Beanoff, thinking it's strange. And Beanoff's like, but we could get hurt. We're kids. Because she's thinking, you know, like an 11 year old with lots of privilege, like I'm getting hemmed in with rules about how to not hurt myself all the time. Demaya's like, but we're not kids. We're young tools. And Beanoff is really having a hard time wrapping her head around that. Demaya sort of snaps at her and gives her a quick little rundown and like grits are tense and quiet. You're way too relaxed. You're way too chill. You're way too excited about life. It's just very unseemly for a grit. You should be way more terrorized. Bianca's like, okay, okay, okay. I can pretend to be terrorized. And it totally doesn't work. She's such a bad tourist. This is the part where her child spyness really shows through. She doesn't have the experience to actually be a spy and actually perform subterfuge. She thinks she's doing it really well. She's taking herself very seriously. But her inability to do the body language of being a grit is like, yeah, you're gonna need to work on that. <laughs> her disguises will get better by Kostrema when Esun confronts her over it. <laughs> so they go inside main and they head inside the normal way, but this time she turns to the right instead of to the left, which means she must be entering on the western side of the building because the south side is where she doesn't usually go. She must be going to the west sides so she's coming in from the west and then turning left normally this time she comes in from the west and goes to the right and goes south cool and then they go downstairs instead of upstairs i wonder how many stories are in this building i don't think we ever get an idea for how tall this is i'm gonna go with like six nothing extreme but it's probably tall how tall is the pentagon that's probably completely irrelevant to how tall this building is but it wouldn't be like and you know office building tall as long as there's that many people so yeah probably six stories at the most do you guys have thoughts on that let me know in discord or on social media the decorations in the hallways are different than she's seen pleasant innocuous scenes painted in little frescoes and then they get close to the guardians she's not excited about that because remember that nasty feeling in the back of the head they don't she doesn't want to go near that Also, these are the people likely to actually punish her and not like her being there, you know. Beanov suggests that Demaya should be able to find the door using Orogeny. And Demaya's like, what are you talking about? That's not how this works. And then as she's saying that, she realizes that actually that might be how this works. (laughs) Which I can relate to. You guys have heard me talk through lots of things here on the podcast, even in this episode. I talk through things and discover them as I say it. Many times I have argued with myself and come out agreeing with what I was initially arguing with. (laughs) I think that the way Demaya is looking at this might be, you could describe it as maybe like an ultrasound of the walls. It's sort of using her orogeny to feel where things are more dense or less dense. And then seeing the walls seeing through the walls in that way which i mean we can all do that right if you're stepping on i don't know an old bridge you can tell when you're stepping on the parts that are right over the trusses versus the parts that are suspended between the trusses like you can tell the resonance under your feet is different so it just expands that into however you imagine orogeny And I think that that's pretty much what's going on here. So I think that an ultrasound is like the right metaphor for that. I'm going to imagine it kind of like when you get, you know, daredevil POV CGI shots. I'm imagining it kind of like that. You know, everything's all shimmery and translucent and dense things are bright and less dense things are less bright. I'm just going to imagine it like that. (laughs) So this is cool because Beanoff is pushing Demaya to develop her skills and think outside of the box and actually be creative with Orogeny. So again, good evidence that she is ready for her first ring test. She's actually able to take a stills imperfect understanding of Orogeny and translate that to an actual idea to try something new with the skills that she knows. It's a very important moment in any skill is when you're able to start getting creative at the request of a person who doesn't have the skills <laughs> that, you, that you have. So Demaya turns and stretches out her hand and thinks about orogeny and tries to feel the wall. The hand thing I think is just a psychological trick. I don't think it has anything to do with orogeny, but they're taught to sort of perform the orogeny just a little bit because it helps make the stills more comfortable if they can see what you're doing it's total nonsense but you know it becomes a bit of a psychological crutch makes sense right kind of like how we all you know squinch our noses when we're trying to see farther like that helps at all (laughs) being off is of course super excited oh my god are you doing orogeny are you doing orogeny hi what's it working hi hi what's up and it's very annoying because she's like a puppy dog being super 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 excited demaya's like go away before i ice you off, of course, respects the unknown and backs up and shuts up. Demaya's totally exaggerating, but, you know, it's a good thing to get the mad scientist out of your hair when you're trying to think. So I will forgive her the lie, <laughs> even if it is to my precious Tonki. So Demaya is seeing, she's looking at the wall behind the room. So they're in the corridor and there's a room between them and the wall that they're interested in. She's using erogeny to see the structural supports of... The far wall, not the wall that they're looking at. So they walk up and down the hallway until she finds the right spot. And she's like, there it is. There's a weak spot in the wall behind the room that we're in front of the door for. This is where Beanoff gets to actually be useful. And she picks the lock based on having read about it and having a hairpin. (laughs) Again, things I aspire to, but actually have never done. I've never even tried to pick a lock with a hairpin, much less successfully done it. So hats off to Beanoff. Actually, I guess it's not a hairpin. It's some random tool that she has in her pockets that looks like a tool Demaya once used to pick bits of shell out of kurganuts. So it's not a hairpin. But nonetheless, it's a little piece of metal that Beanoff got from somewhere and is she's gonna use to pick the lock. And they have a very nice tense moment while Beanoff is trying to get through the thing. Demaya's pacing. It's just very much montage scene of anxiety. <laughs> And Maya tries to call it off and say, you can come back tomorrow and try again. Beanoff's like, hell no, I'm not going to be able to pull off getting down here again. This is my one shot. Give me another second. And it works. And her response to that is to say, Earth's flaming farts. (laughs) It's fun. I love kid cursing. Kid cursing in a fantasy world is totally the best. They go in. And it's weird for Demaya to see an office that has been used. She's spent so much time in unused rooms, it's weird to see one that's currently being lived in. A basic study, bookshelves on the walls, elaborate chairs, big fancy desk. No door on the far side, but Demaya can tell that the room's not deep enough. So they go over to a closet and they open it up and it's too shallow. And so she pushes past the brooms in the closet and pushes on the wall. That doesn't do anything. But then that gives enough an idea and they sort of fiddle around. And long story short, they find tunnels. Or they find a tunnel. They find their way into a tunnel. When I was reading this before, this reminded me of the fact that there's a bunch of tunnels under the city of Portland. Apparently you can take tours in them. They're like bootlegger tunnels and... Just weird stuff to do with Portland's history that a lot of it's super racist and creepy and I don't fully understand where the urban legends drop off and the facts start but there is a whole system of tunnels under Portland and you can take tours in them. There's a lot of tunnels under Paris too. I remember reading a really long article about the world underneath Paris. Like tunnels that go down to Roman era stuff sometimes. Anyhow, tunnels are trippy. Particularly human-made tunnels. Caves are one thing. Human-made tunnels are a different, a different thing. Beanoff assumes that this is probably going to lead down to store caches or something. And this is when we learn that there aren't store caches in the fulcrum, which is sort of this weird, unanswered question. Demaya's like, thinking to herself, what are they supposed to do if there's a season? And it's like, yeah, all those empty rooms, I think that's what you do during a season. <laughs> beanoff's like well that might be true but it's humaness and it's just tunnels they're a thing that you find everywhere in cities and that's when they find the door they find a little like loose brick that opens a latch a handle and now Demai is committed to it and she's like all right pull it beanoff's like really now you're interested (laughs) and they pull it and it opens up into a tunnel And they're both a little bit sketched out about going down it. Demaya asks, what's in there? b like, I don't know. Demaya goes for an adult curse and calls it bullshit. Ooh. Using a grown-up curse word. And it's true that it's sort of bullshit. Demaya's like, you know something. You came all the way here for something. You can't tell me you don't know what's down there. Beanoff at first tries to brush it off and push past. Demaya's like, no. I'm not helping you anymore until I get some freaking answers. She bluffs that she's going to go tell the guardians <laughs> on her. But obviously she's not going to do that because the guardians are like the worst people to find them down here. It's a good thing that no guardians find them down here, right? Oh, <laughs> uh, well. Beanoff tries to pull only leaders can know this. Some sort of rank. It's for your protection, blah, blah, blah. She's trying to say, no, only leaders, only leaders. Demaya's like, well, you're a leader. Change the rule. Which I appreciate because, again, child logic. Like, we're not going to think really complicatedly about this and make it a big, huge thing. Just freaking tell me. Damn it. Binaf's like, fine, you're right. Might as well tell you. And we get everything she knows. All she knows is that there is some kind of artifact at the heart of the fulcrum. Something that kept people from building on the site of the fulcrum for a very long time but there's nothing anywhere in her studies that indicate what that thing was and so it's a giant hole in history it's funny that she phrases it as a hole or a gap because it's also literally a pit it's literally a hole in the earth (laughs) so it's funny that she uses that as a metaphor but she's pieced together what she can from what's not said and what's not included And that's why she's here, because she wants to find out what this thing is that everyone's so afraid of that she can't find out any information about what it was. Beanoff has a much greater appreciation for the history of the Empire. She gets a much more thorough history of the Empire. Granted, it's probably full of propaganda, but it's at least a lot more detailed than what Demaya gets. So we get to get some very non-heavy-handed exposition with Demaya getting this explanation from Binoff. So the story basically is that the site of humanus was a really logical place for people to build for a really long time. And nobody built there. People were afraid of what was there. I think it was viewed as a graveyard. That's my personal feeling is I feel like the socket would have been there the whole time, right? The socket would have been there. And probably there was the remnants of Well, I mean, we know that when the socket was full of obelisk, full of fragment, that there was a mess of people's bodies, the Thneas's bodies, and all of the earlier editions of the Tuners' bodies. We know that those were being fed into the fragments, literal graveyard. There also would have been the remnants of the city that was built around it. That would have been a graveyard. Any civilizations that tried to build near there would have lived and grown however they did, but eventually become graveyards. But I bet that the Socket ended up being kind of like a bad luck charm. Particularly because of the connection that it would have had with guardians. Well, those who would become guardians before the Sansa Empire was founded and the Fulcrum was founded. The people would have become guardians would have gone mad near the Socket probably. I bet that a lot of Origins would have gone insane near the Socket. It was probably just weird things would have happened because of, because this is a contaminated socket, right? This is not an ordinary socket. The needles that we see here in a bit, those are rare in sockets. Those do not always happen. So this is one of the bad ones. (laughs) I don't think that there's all the sockets are left all over the world. I think a lot of them were destroyed. A lot of them have been buried by tectonic processes or gone into the ocean. This one's still around. And I think that because it was one of the ones that got contaminated by Father Earth, it's been a bit of a bad luck charm until someone figured out how to build on top of it and that was the founding of the fulcrum the founding of the sanset empire all of those people were bold enough emperor verice was bold enough to build right there where everyone was afraid to be which according to binoff's telling was actually really good propaganda in the early years it helped the superstitiousness of that helped keep the enemies from moving in even when the empire was apparently Vulnerable enough that that could have been a problem. Being on haunted ground was advantageous. <laughs> so once Demaya has downloaded this information, she walks down the tunnel. The tunnel is narrow briefly, and then they go into a huge space. And Demaya can instantly tell it's a huge space, or a much bigger space anyway. And so she stops right at the edge of that and grabs Bean off. Don't go further. The ground is pressed down up ahead. And then B can hear the echoes and, you know, put it together. And say, oh, it's a huge space. Demaya is trying to explain what she means about the space up ahead that it's pressed down, that there was something heavy there. And it's one of these things we see the Origins complain about a lot is that there's no language to really explain what they feel and sense. We learn with the tuners that they have their own way of vocabularizing all these earth sensations but origins don't have that internally or between each other which is unfortunate but she's trying to explain to binoff Beanoff's trying to wrap her head around it Beanoff trusts amaya because she's like well you're clearly the expert and then Beanoff says resting fuck we need some light and just on cue lights appear on the ground up ahead and we know from kastrema what well, we're gonna find out with kastrema and we're also gonna see in book with nasun going through the world with shafa 2.0 when they go through the world we also see this this is just orogeny powered lighting basically just the presence of origins is enough to activate the silver that powers everything because this is ancient silanagistine technology and it just runs off of life itself life is sacred in silanagist the yellow panels continue to activate in sequence and spread slowly forming an enormous hexagon, and gradually illuminating the space in which they stand, a cavernous atrium with six walls, enclosed by what must be the roof of Maine, high above. The walls are featureless, the same plain stone that comprises the rest of Maine, but most of the floor of this chamber has been covered in asphalt, or something very like it. At the core of it, however, there is indeed a depression. That is an understatement. It's a huge tapering pit with flat-sided walls and neat, precise edges. Six of them, cut as finely as one cuts a diamond. It's stories deep, this pit, and steep. The shape of it nags at her, because it is faceted, tapering to a point at the very bottom. No one digs a pit in that shape. But then, no one has dug this pit. She concessed that. Something monstrously heavy punched this pit into the earth and sat in the depression long enough to make all the rock and soil beneath it solidify into those smooth, neat planes. Then whatever it was lifted away, clean as a buttered roll from a pan, leaving nothing but the shape of itself behind. But wait, the walls of the pit are not wholly smooth. Along every smooth slope, she can see thin, barely visible sharp objects, They push up through fine cracks in the smooth walls, jagged and random, like plant roots. The needles are made of iron." So that description, I was skipping bits and pieces of the actual writing, I was just getting the parts that matter. That description tells us more about how the obelisks formed and how the fragments interacted with people, Well, not interact with people, how the fragments interacted with their formation And with Father Earth, this is almost the entire info dump that we get until Hoa spells it out for us in book three. I don't quite know how they initiated the fragments, the formation of the obelisks. But we do know that they took a very long time growing and growing and growing and building and building and building from the life energy of their culture, of their global civilization, before the launch sequence that led up to zero day where they lifted literally out. We see that with Hoa. We see the day, the moment that the obelisks all lift out of their bases growing inside the center of these cities. They lift up and form the plutonic engine, the obelisk gate, and get powered up, and then the events of zero day transpire as they do, and everything gets exploded and blah blah blah. This is us seeing into the trace fossil left behind from that formation we don't know which obelisk sat here the perfect six-sided obelisk i feel like they get described as fractured pieces sometimes we know the onyx is a capuchon i'm very curious if we could tell which obelisk came from here i wonder if it was the garnet Hmm. Things to think about, guys. Things to think about. So the two girls are standing there contemplating it, being like, that is unexpected. beanoff says, it's supposed to be... And then she's cut off. And I have no idea what she was going to say. I'm guessing she was going to say it's supposed to be something, not empty space. I think she was expecting to find a device or a book. Toxic sludge <laughs> or something. This empty space, however strangely shaped, is... Not what she was expecting. But she gets cut off by the arrival of a guardian, which signals the final phase of this chapter, which is seeing a guardian get contaminated and killed. When Demaya is surprised, she almost falls into the pit, but it's in this very strange call of the void sort of way. She almost feels pulled into it. And she relaxes and doesn't try to catch herself in such a way that if she just kept relaxing, she would have just sort of collapsed and fallen into the pit. But she doesn't have to. Like, if she just stands there and acts like a normal person, then she'll be fine. Like, there's just this really weird moment that, you know, call of the void. But I think Father Earth is having a little extra gravity, a little extra pull, a little extra, like, let me kill you, tiny little flea. Hello, little enemy. Except with, like, way more vindictiveness. Than just the hello. I think this is just like, I will kill anyone that comes near me. That's probably why they had to build an entire freaking fulcrum around the thing before they could put a city on it. Also, again, Beanoff is there to grab her arm and pull her forward, which is good. Beanoff probably just saved the world right there. Thank you, Beanoff. And then the Guardian comes back into her consciousness as Demia's is standing there being like, Why did I almost throw myself into the pit? <laughs> like, why did that happen? And then the Guardian comes back into her consciousness and she's like, Oh, fuck. I am so fucked. Fuckity fuckity fuck. The woman is tall and broad and bronze, with ashblow hair shorn into a bristly cap. She feels older than Shafa, though this is difficult to tell. She just feels heavier in presence. And her smile is the same unnerving combination of peaceable and menacing as that of every guardian Demaya has ever seen. And Demaya thinks, "'I only need to be afraid of her if she thinks I'm dangerous.'" is an origin who goes where she knows she should not dangerous off, having far less complicated baggage around guardians is a much more straightforward 11 year old about it and seems to be looking like she's gonna make a run for it or something because you know she doesn't know the capacities or the dangers of guardians she's just like oh no the adults found us and you know probably sometimes she does successfully run away from adults but it won't work here and the guardian knows who Demaya is and knows who she's attached to. And as soon as off sees Demaya get spoken to, she blurts out, no, I'm in charge of this. I strong-armed her into it. Don't punish her, punish me. Or not punish me, but like, don't blame her. You know, she makes good on her, on her desire to not get Demaya in trouble. She's going to get Demaya in trouble, but she's going to be very good about trying to get her out of it again. <laughs> she means well. Beanoff actually lies for her. She didn't even know about this door and this place until I told her, which is technically true, but not really true. And Demaya wants to correct her because Demaya's a goody two shoes and wants to always be correct, but the Guardian is looking at Beanoff curiously, and that's a positive sign because nobody's hands have been broken yet. Ugh. What a fucked up world. When how many hands have been broken in a given exchange is a reasonable metric of how well you're doing. The Guardians are fucked up, man. And the Guardian calls Benos disguise out for what it is being a disguise. And Beanoff's like, oh shit, right, I'm supposed to be in character. And then she sheds the character and becomes as officious and bossy and leaderish as she possibly can in all of her 11-year-old dignity. And it actually works, surprisingly. Her manner of speaking changes Demaya thinks of it as being not so much haughty as grave, as if the world's fate depended on finding the answer to her question, as if she isn't just some spoiled girl from a powerful family who decided on a whim to do something incredibly stupid. (laughs) Which, it's funny because both those things are true. In a way, this does save the world. Answering this question does save the world. But it's also Kid Detective. (laughs) I don't think it was a whim, though. I think that this is probably something that Beanoff had been working on for like two years. I'm gonna head canon that this was the culmination of at least a year, but probably two years of asking questions and being confused and asking more questions and finding what she can find. I think this was not a whim, I think this was very thought out. Beanoff names herself. The guardian is goes into full on PR mode. Oh, how nice to meet you. You're a leader. You should have let us know you were coming. We could have arranged a tour. Beanoff's like, yeah, I probably should have done that, but I just wanted to see it myself. That's probably a bad call. My parents will probably be annoyed when you talk to them about it, because they totally know I'm here. Which surprises Demaya. Demaya did not expect <laughs> Beanoff to think so far ahead as to make sure that they don't get murdered down there. But I think Demaya just has a low sense for who Beanoff is as soon underestimates tonki too it takes her a while to realize how valuable and useful tonki can be the guardian speaks in strange ways already here at the beginning and i think from what shafa says later she had let her connections to her origins degrade so she'd kind of gotten more contaminated or more earthified by father earth i don't quite know what goes on with guardians but you can kind of tell already here that she's a little bit not there she's just the way she talks here i shall speak to your guardian and we shall all speak together that would be lovely yes yes please it's just there's a rhythm to it that feels like she's in a slightly different space or speaking with a slightly different cadence from a different era because if she's older than shafa i mean we learn in book three, that Shafa is probably one of the oldest guardians and he's got to be in the tens of thousands of years old category. If this woman is older, and I'm going to trust Amaya on this and say that this woman is older than Shafa, she's tens of thousands of years old. She's very old. She might be using the cadences of a bygone era. <laughs> I don't know. That's what I think's happening here. You're getting just a tiny hint that something's a little off before she gets fully contaminated the guardian leads them out the lights go off behind them they go through the office and the guardian stops demaya takes Beanoff farther down away Beanoff looks at demaya and tries to communicate something with her eyes but demaya's not interested she's already gotten in enough trouble and so the message doesn't connect I suspect that the message was something like, I will find you and we will talk about this again. Obviously, that doesn't happen for 30 years, but I would guess that that's what the message was. And it does ultimately come true. And that's the last we see of Beanoff. That's the last Demaya will see of Beanoff for 30 years. That was an interesting afternoon in Beanoff's life. Demaya still has one more, two more horrific things to go through for the day. First, she has to deal with this guardian getting freaky and then she's gonna to have to deal with her first ring test though we don't have to deal with her first ring test because that's not on screen so demaya waits where she was told to wait because she doesn't need to get in more trouble for not being there when she was told to stay other guardians notice her but don't do anything presumably at this point shafa is hearing that he needs to come down and do something about one of his charges and then after a little bit the guardian comes back having discharged being off to whatever she probably turned her over to the head of security and was like just deal with this and the dude was like what why is there a child here the guardian's like just deal with it and then turns and walks away i'm gonna imagine that's more or less what happened and then bnf has some sort of hilarious one-liner and then cut to black (laughs) the guardian comes back and says i've sent for shafa fortunately he's in the city so he can get here soon which is extremely fortunate because based on what happens next, Demaya might have died because Father Earth comes through this woman and maybe would have killed her. I don't know. But it's very fortunate Shafa was in the city. So they go to a different office. We go through kind of a office space full of desks of people that have a mix of black and burgundy uniforms, as well as civilian clothing, which is interesting. This is one of the few spaces where all three parties... Guardians, Origins, and Stills actually interact in an administrative sense. I have no idea what any of that means, but I'm going to guess it has to do with intelligence gathering. Because, you know, what else would they be doing, I guess? (laughs) She is led to a small private office at the end. An unused office. She starts out with apologizing. I'm sorry, I didn't think. Guardian brushes that aside and says, Did you touch... Any of the extrusions from the socket walls. This is very important. The Guardian is very curious if Demaya touched those needles that came out of the walls because that's how Father Earth touched the obelisks. That's how Father Earth learned what he did about the strange parasitic life form on his surface. Presumably, that material is also the same kind of material that gets used to make core stones oh my god what if this is where core stones come from what if they harvest them from here oh my god this must be where they can harvest core stones from i mean they probably recycle them because weird creepy reasons but this in theory would be the same material would it i don't know I mean, Father Earth would have all of the materials of his crust to work with. He wouldn't have to send core iron. Or would he? Oh, man. Oh, man. Maybe that's why they had to put the fulcrum here, so they'd have access to as much of the core stone material as they would need. Because they would have not had very much, because as I recall, it's like the size of a baseball or something, is the sample that's on zero day. That would be a very finite source. This could be the mine, so to speak oh whoa okay headcanon accepted until someone comes up with a better explanation or counter evidence done in the course of this conversation this paragraph right here as the guardian is explaining what she's interested in about Demaya's interaction did you touch it and explaining that i think in these paragraphs at the bottom half of page 324 I think that is where she goes from fighting to maintain herself to losing herself and becoming contaminated with father earth for some reason in this moment in this set of paragraphs that's when the transition happens I think I think it doesn't happen before I think it happens right here the guardian puts out her hand to take Demaya's hand and asks what did it say to Demaya. She kind of is holding Demaya's hand like a palm reader or something being like, you can talk to me tell me what it said and Demaya didn't hear anything aside from that pull that almost pulled her in that Beanoff saved her from and then the woman starts saying things that don't make sense to Demaya but I think do make sense if you consider that the moon is coming back and that's going to be having an effect on the earth, the tug on the earth is going to reflect that It's angry, angry and afraid. I hear both gathering, growing, the anger and the fear, readying for the time of return. It did what it had to do last time. It seeped through the walls and tainted their pure creation, exploited them before they could exploit it. When the arcane connections were made, it changed those who would control it, chained them fate to fate. It made them a part of it. It hoped for communion, compromise. Instead, the battle escalated. It speaks only to warn now. There will be no compromise next time. That is the completeness of what Temei, this guardian, says. A lot of, of other things happened while she's saying that but that is what she says and it doesn't make sense when you're reading it the first time it doesn't make sense to Demaya it wouldn't make sense to anyone except late book Essun late third book Essun really it doesn't make sense to anyone except Hoa probably (laughs) but it's like it's funny because the guardian speaks from herself she's not speaking as the earth and yet she's speaking as the earth it's like she's some other she's interpreting the earth's feelings but through her own like conjugation we speak of father earth and often i use the pronoun he to explain the earth but it makes sense that it's actually an it you know it's beyond life earth is so much more than a person i mean earth is alive in this book in this world earth is alive but not in a way that requires gender (laughs) shall we say It's spoken of that way in enough stories that it makes sense. I think it's interesting that it hoped for compromise before. That it saw what happened before as a battle. That it needs to win this time. Because we know from the perspective of the tuners in book three that the launch and Zero Day. I'm really excited to get to the third book now that I'm analyzing everything in the first book. Also, I think it's worth noting that Father Earth did not note the difference between the conductors and the tuners. Because the tuners are the ones who got turned into being chained fate to fate with the Earth and being forced to be living stone that can never die. The conductors were the problem. The conductors who became the guardians were the true exploitative problematic ones in that exchange but father earth didn't give a fuck father earth was most angry at the people who were at the front of the line and that was the tuners father earth didn't distinguish father earth was like all you humans and everyone who looks like humans you're all all equally guilty and i will just fry you by proximity alone while all of this happening the guardian is crushing Demaya's hand, the one that was broken, and Demaya's freaking out, saying, I'll do anything. I'll say anything. I'm sorry. Let me go. Meanwhile, the thumbnail is just getting driven deeper and deeper into her palm. It's a very tense, anxious moment. Then there's a knock at the door, and the woman ignores it. And that's Shafa. And then when nobody answers, Shafa lets himself in. Also, he hears Demaya crying out. Shafa lets himself in, and here's a really heartbreaking line. There is an order to life in the fulcrum, and this woman is breaking it. Demaya is used to being hurt in specific ways for specific reasons. Guardians are a source of safety and comfort, except in the situation where they aren't. This woman is breaking those rules. This is very, very problematic for the conditioning that Demaya has been experiencing in her two years here at the fulcrum. Shafa flows into the room in response to Demaya raising her voice and crying out at a guardian and i want to cheer because shafa's saving Damaya, but it's also like ugh, shafa yuck i wonder why the earth is speaking through to May. i don't understand why there's a warning she says that there will be no compromise this next time i don't understand why you need to warn if there's not going to be compromise. just obliterate the fuckers you know I don't get it, Father Earth. What, what's your game? Maybe Timei doesn't understand. Or maybe I don't understand something about the perspectives. Time might be interpreting it wrong. I don't know. But she's not really there. It's not Tame anymore. It's the Earth. But it's the Earth through a fragile human brain. So, I don't know. So Shafa basically checks in with the Guardian to make sure she really is fucked. And then is like, oh, that's a shame. And kills her by stabbing his hand into the back of her skull and ripping out her brain stem as you do (laughs) it's so nasty and it takes a lot of strength to do something like that and it's just like ew the scene is very very horrific demaya screams because it's a very stressful moment to see someone get that happen to them and have blood suddenly come around their face and go slack and it's just it's really gross and then Shafa has a hand covered in, like, some really nasty gore. It's real gross. Demaya's not into it. She's screaming, and Shafa is like, be quiet. And so she does. She shuts up. It's just, the whole thing is so horrific and messed up. Shafa carefully removes the core stone from the corpse and gives it to one of the other guardians who comes in. I assume to be recycled, or maybe it's just that they don't want those things floating around because they could get into anybody and fuck them up. I don't know but they're handled very carefully and these other guardians come in and they all just sort of sigh like, oh, that's unfortunate like this thing happens frequently but I kind of wonder if it's because they all knew that Tamei was old and had let her connection that staves off the agony of being a guardian she had let that connection go south so maybe everyone was kind of expecting something like this and so it's like oh bummer and they all kind of just ignore Demaya. They take away the body. They clean up the desk. It's all very efficient. Again, just the horror elements are just. This isn't like shock horror. This is psychological horror. They just move around this little girl who witnessed that and maybe almost died. And they just efficiently clean up the body around her and don't even pay attention to her. It's messed up. And then Shafa sits down in Tame's place and takes Demaya's hand. And it's just like, dude, come on, have some fucking class. That's really like she just experienced something terrible in that exact position you think you could do something else Tamaya jerks her eyes to him only because she must Oh, rough so yeah shafa takes her hand and you know looks at it is happy that she didn't get hurt worse and then he says that was something you shouldn't have seen you know in a gentle way like i'm sorry you had to see that you shouldn't have had to see that and She asks him what was going on there, and he gives her a little bit of an explanation, you know, appropriate to the level of unfortunate information she's just gotten. He explains that guardians are different because they have an implant in the back of their heads, and sometimes the implant just, something goes wrong, and it has to be removed, as you saw. (laughs) It's a very cold way of putting it. This is where we learn also that At the back of the skull is that connection that helps the guardians stave off the danger of what Timei suffered. Then Demaya tries to explain about the weird things that the voice inside Timei was saying. Shafa says, yeah, I heard some of it. Demaya tries to explain it it wasn't her. It was something else. And Shafa says she thought she was deluded into thinking that that was father earth and i crossed that out in a red pen and wrote truth in my book because it's important that they call it a delusion you know but it's truth it's what is happening it's a very interesting interesting lie that shafa will learn the truth of in 20 years or so 20 years or so he's gonna learn what that voice is like in his head for real but for now he believes that it's a delusion It's not a delusion. Shafa expresses genuine regret and compassion that Demaya had to see everything and witness that and go through this experience. And I believe him. I believe he's sincere here. He has his compassionate side, despite all the horrible things he does. He thinks he's compassionate, so he means it. And this makes Demaya cry for the first time since he took her away. Well, since before, he took her away, technically. For the first time since she had her life end and had to come to the fulcrum, she cries. And Shafa comes around the table and picks her up and holds her and lets her cry herself out. Because that's the relationship that is here, you know? That's what the order of life in the fulcrum is, is that guardians are your parent, your comfort, your jailer, all at the same time. Shafa loves her in his tender and terrifying way. He smells of sweat and leather and iron, things she will forever associate with comfort and fear. It's so sad. So sad. So Shafa holds her while she cries herself out. Very important tears. Those tears needed to come out. It's been a long time. It's a really, really... She needed that cathartic release. And Shafa gave her a safe space to do it in. And then he asks her how she's doing. She's like, I'm all right. I got this. And he's like, okay, good. Because you're going to pass your first ring test for me right now, tonight. And that is a big deal. Because, first of all, they're supposed to get warning so that they can practice. She's tired. It was the end of a long day and now she's gone through a very exciting evening. And it's also a big deal because she, by rights, should be taken out of the grit pool right now. She should be put into a wire chair for being disobedient. But just like with the incident with the alcohol, just like the incident with Kraken Mashish, for some reason, the Guardians say, eh, she's mediocre enough, we'll keep her. It's okay. She's just non-extraordinary enough to slip under their radar and get another chance and ultimately go on to save the world. This is a really important decision Shafa just made. He's just really good in this chapter. Shafa is, he's not doing anything horrible in this chapter. So it's hard to hate him during this chapter. We should still hate him. He's still an agent of evil, horrible things, doing horrible, horrible things. But it's hard to hate him for this chapter. And then Shafa says something interesting. I need you to live, Demaya, my compassionate one. My life is so full of death. Please pass this test for me. And that cinches a series of thoughts in her mind where this is not right she knows this isn't right and she has to accept it anyway this is I think a moment of compartmentalization this is a sense of injustice that she is able to put away and not think about almost ever again in her professional life as an origin. This is something that gets unfolded when the confrontation at Mayov happens. This is the closing of Demaya, the beginning of Cyanite. This is the beginning of Cyanite. She chooses her name before she goes into the test. It's it's so hard because she can't... What is it? She can't look at him and say this. Not without letting him see the this isn't right in her eyes. This is when she accepts... The institutionalization. Is this a there's there a moment in the Stockholm Syndrome process that this is actually has a name for? I, I don't know, but this feels like a very important turning point in her psyche around being enslaved by this system. She knows it's not right, and she has to accept it being right in order to survive. She tells Shafa that she's picked a Raga name, and he doesn't chide her on using the slur. Because this is an important moment. Language isn't important. And he wants to know what it is and he loves it he approves it he gets why she chose it and he loves that she chose it for herself and it's a very heartwarming paternal moment if you divorce it from all the context he's laughing but in a good way with her not at her it's a very sweet thing that he supports this about her he cares he thinks he cares he genuinely cares whenever he's Able to. It's so twisted. It's <laughs> so twisted. And she decides that she will never cry again. That is a thing Demaya did. And cyanite will be stronger. And this is when those of us who hadn't caught on to the fact that she's totally cyanite were like, oh, I should have realized she was cyanite. Darn it, I'm slow on the uptake. <laughs> and so, as cyanite, she promises that she will pass the test for Shafa. And Shafa says, my good girl, and smiles and holds her close, which just feels like a really creepy bow to put on top of the conditioning situation that just happened. I feel like that was a very yucky moment in her conforming to the fulcrum, and he just wrapped it up with the creepiest bow tie you possibly could. Ugh. The stone lore for this chapter, I think, reflects a warning about the Guardians, a warning about what happened to Timei. I think that the stone lore is either talking about Guardians getting contaminated, or it's talking about keeping power away from Origins. Because if you let them get too into their origin powers and give them power over others, they will be terrible, terrible people... I don't think that that's what this is about, though, because it's the incomplete truth. It's obscured. I think this is a warning about what happens if you let the Guardians get contaminated. It might be a warning about Stone Eaters, but I don't think so. I really think that this is about the dangers associated with Guardians having core stones. Obscured. Those who would take the Earth too closely unto themselves they are not masters of themselves allow them no mastery of others tablet 2 the incomplete truth verse 9 you have been listening to the broken earth spoilers podcast a fox and raven media production connect with us on discord and social media rate us in your favorite podcast app and remember to support us on patreon